Welcome to the Bellew Podcast. Please note the information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to the program. My name is Nick Burgess. This is the ELNC Bailey podcast where we make sense of the market. It's December. We're nearing Christmas and the conclusion of a year that none of us will ever forget. But we thought before we all head off for a well-earned break, we'd take a look at what the next 12 months might look like for Australian investment markets. Um, we've got COVID. We've now got the vaccine, fiscal stimulus, low interest rates. What does it all mean for the outlook? And which Australian stocks are positioned to do well? To help us do this, I am delighted to welcome our friends from Wilson Asset Management, Matt Haupt and John Ayub. They are the lead portfolio managers for the WAM Leaders Listed Investment Company. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Oh, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. So let's cut right to the chase, guys. Are you positive or cautious on the outlook for markets for 2021? Yeah, Nick, we're actually quite positive on the outlook for markets. And I mean, the fundamental reason uh, behind that view is um, very supportive monetary and fiscal positions at the moment as we navigate through the the depths of the, the COVID crisis and, and the recovery. Um, and we think what's going to lead us higher next year is business investment and credit growth um, returning, uh, mainly in, in that business side. So uh, for us, we're very constructive. Um, all, the, all the settings are, are there for a, a good equity market next year. Valuations are high. But I, I think the underlying fun, fundamentals are definitely there um, for a good year next year. Excellent. That is good news. Uh, for you guys in your listed investment companies, cash levels are always a good barometer as an indicator of how positive or negative you are. So where do your cash levels sit in the portfolio out of interest? At the moment, we've been, we're have been we sitting around about 4%, got as low as 2 But one of the beauties of um, running leaders is that we have a bit more flexibility to, 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 to head north into the larger, larger sphere of the index. And with that, we get a little bit more protection. And we quite often... Um, we quite often not only use cash as a defensive mechanism, but we actually can find defence in in equity. So stocks, stocks like Newcrest and Northern Star, in the depths of um, fear, they can you can make money from those. So at the moment, we're sitting around four percent, but um, we try to steer away from cash as the pure barometer for for our risk appetite. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And just before we get into a little bit of the nitty gritty, if we think about you know COVID and the experience of the uh, of the last twelve months, the three phases of the economy, and I think you guys have written or spoken about this before. If you think about the reopening phase, the recovery phase, and then a return to normal, where do you guys put us on that spectrum now, and where do you expect us to head into twenty twenty one? Oh, it's, it's very different across geographies, but Australia is very much on the, um, you know, the normality path. But um, obviously, um, heading into December, some of the other geographies are uh, going back into deep restrictions. But um, 2021, you could bank on a return to normal. Um, you know, even if the vaccine is not that effective in, in the field, um, herd immunity and you know, viruses generally run um to a certain end anyway. So I think 2021, very much back to normality and the way the market is positioned, still very biased towards, um, you know, this unconventional monetary policy um, and inflated asset prices in uh, very specific areas such as tech and um, other beneficiaries of COVID. So I think there's still a bit of a rotation to happen, um, but you'd be banking on a return to normality in 2021. 
So um, we want to get into some three three key themes we've identified or you guys have identified that um, are important for the next 12 months. Before we do that, always like to give our guests an opportunity to remind us of their investment universe and their investment style. So how would you describe WAM Leaders' mandate? So the way we look at it, we're, we're an ASX 200 fund. So we invest in companies in the ASX 200. Um, we utilise a top-down and also a bottom-up approach. So top-down is around macro thematics, um, finding companies which will benefit from tailwinds, macro tailwinds. And on the bottom-up, um, we're trying to identify companies on specific valuation grounds that stack up. But ultimately, we, whichever way we go, if we start at the top, uh, we will bottom-up analysis on those thematics. And if we start at the bottom-up, uh, we always look at the top-down as well to work out if there's tailwinds or a headwind. So it um, doesn't matter which way we approach it from the top or the bottom, we always end up um, assessing both factors. And the only thing I'll add to that is that our view internally is that we should be able to make money or outperform an index in all market conditions, and that's the premise that um, we, we start every year. So notwithstanding, yeah, if it's a, if it's a small cap, if it's a tech, if it's a cyclical recovery, we should be able to outperform in all market conditions, and that's the premise that we invest in. Excellent. Okay, so um, I've asked you guys to nominate three key investment themes for the year ahead, and we're going to talk about those themes and some related stocks. But from your perspective right now, what are the three things that you're most excited about for the next 12 months? I guess one of the key thematics we talked about is the return to normality. And the way we see it, there's still trillions of dollars um, positioned not for normality. So when we look at sectors which could do well, I still think financials is a sector that could do well. Um, financials have been crunched by low interest rates globally. Um, you know, credit as well has been dried up and also there's been, um, you know, some pessimism around credit cycles. So I still think financials is an area you want to be overweighting in 2021 as we return to normal and as we touch on business investment and credit growth uh, picks up as well as personal um, as employment numbers get better and confidence returns um, globally. And that is a sector you want to remain overweight. Um, another one would be energy. A lot of demand destruction happened during the shutdowns. Um, around 15 million barrels of demand um, was taken out of the market. And, you know, we sit around 100 million barrels. So it's a, it's a, it's a big number, 15 million out of 100 to take out of the market. So as we return to normal and you get movement back through travel, uh, through industrial production picking up, the use of oil is quite widespread and we'd, we'd think a return to normal will come back. So we're quite confident on energy, but it's going to be fairly rocky over the next few months. But in the middle of 2021, um, would expect a, a big recovery in energy stocks, which have been big underperformers. Um, and another another big thematic that we're focused on for for, uh, for twenty one and twenty two, um, as Matt spoke about the business um, investment cycle starting to kick off. A lot of companies are now trading on depressed earnings. Even though there's there's somewhat of a multiple expansion in the market, um, earnings are still fairly depressed. So when we we look at it from that standpoint. We see M and A being a very big thematic going forward, and if you kind of consider what 
corporate Australia has done for the last several years. They've been very much uh, cautious in their approach when it comes to M&A, um, in particular acquisitions, and, and are very much the top 50 focus. But we've started to see the the emergence of some activity um, coming to and so we, we anticipate that we're going to see uh, big Australia start to make significant investment from an M&A standpoint. Equally, we see mergers um, start to become more prevalent um, going forward as companies try to take advantage of uh, relative strengths and weaknesses um, as we start to see the cyclical recovery. So um, so from that standpoint, yeah, we're very positive around that thematic and, try, and, and we're spending a fair bit of time trying to identify who may be their acquirers and equally who may be acquired. Okay, excellent. So three you know, big and important themes there, financials, energy, and then M&A. So let's dig down into that a little bit more. So let's deal with the uh, financials. Uh, so Matt, you mentioned um, you know, credit growth as the economy uh, returns to normal. Uh, what about interest rates? Um, obviously, a bank earns revenue through a net interest margin. The lower the interest rates, the harder it is for them to maintain that margin. What's your outlook for interest rates and, and do you need interest rate increases to get you know really bullish on, on the banks? Yeah, it's a very topical question around interest rates. Um, there's a big belief, you know, there's about $18 trillion of negative yielding debt in the market at the moment and it's been increasing. So there's a big store of thought that interest rates cannot go up from here and there's a cap on them. Uh, you've got central banks with yield curve control measures. So at the moment, very much... Um, it's going to be hard-pressed to get interest rates moving at the short end and in, in the belly. At the long end, they're starting to move. Um, so what needs to happen is 2021, the normality we talked about coming back into the market and inflation expectations, which is also linked to energy picking up. As the energy picks up over the, has picked up over Q3 and um, into Q4 now too, um, the, the delta of energy will flow through inflation. So... I think there is a case for interest rates at the long end to start pushing up, but for the real kicker for the banks um, is that short end and, and, and the belly uh, needs to pick up, and that will be done once the economy is firing again and central banks start stepping off um, yield curve control. So that is a while off, but in the first instance, I think credit growth will be a driver, and as we navigate um, off fiscal stimulus and this credit cycle is not as bad as people think, that will be the catalyst for the banks to re-rate in the short term. The interest rates will be the kicker in the medium to long term, not in the short term. Yeah, okay. So just on the interest rates, you know, the RBA said they'll leave rates unchanged for three years. Do you actually think that's realistic um, or it's a, a sort of a, a confidence a positioning with subject to review, you know, one to two years down the line? Yeah, I think the RBA are doing a little bit of jawboning there. The the QE, which is uh, was done, you know, only a month ago, was probably at the wrong time. It's probably um, should have been done much earlier. So I think the risk of um, the Australian economy booming in the short term is is high. So I think that yield curve control measure, which they've jawboned around not moving for a few years, I think that could be unwound. And it'll probably be unwound, the QE, I think, in the middle of next year will be definitely out of the market and they'll let the five- and three-year rate start moving up is my base case at the moment. Um, but, yeah, definitely jawboning to get confidence and um, 
um, people um, spending and um, again, but yeah, definitely stepping off the the five and the three year rates is something that will happen, I think, sooner than people expect. Okay, in the short term, um, in the recent US reporting season, some of the US banks wrote back a number of their provisions. Do you think that's a realistic expectation and potentially a, an upside surprise for Australian banks in the short term? Yeah, hundred percent. So you you'd remember. A lot of the provisions were struck around, um, you know, March in in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, there is a significant um, opportunity for writebacks to happen. Um, all the banks will be waiting for the fiscal policies to roll off post March of next year. And once that happens, and they can see a clear, you know, trend, they will start writing back. Um, those provisions and they're overcapitalised too. So you'll start to see buybacks um, by the Australian banks by the, um, you know, late next year in 2021, you could be getting capital management. So very much um, a case of uh, writebacks of provisions and capital management, a definite theme for the Aussie banking sector in 2021. And I guess it's quite timely, actually, that we're talking about banks today. So this morning, APRA has relaxed its cap on bank dividends in terms of the pay ratio, as well as the way that they're calculated. So potentially, if things uh, go the way that you're talking, there's, you know, a reasonable amount of upside to dividends as well. Is that fair to say? Yeah, correct. You're 100% correct. I think the... The, the risk was, um, you know, dividends would be cut heavily, um, but now those risks have dissipated and I think the risk now is to the upside on dividend payouts as we see provisions um, get unwound or written back and uh, APRA have basically said, given the green light uh, with imprudent measures to have the dividend policy back in their control. So very much working in the favour um, of the Aussie banks at the moment um, after, you know, five to seven years of, of headwinds from policymakers. Yeah, it's important to remember that. I guess it's not just the last six to nine months. It's actually five to seven years of, of capital building. So that's, you know, a, a pretty good um, argument for the banks. Uh, Matt, how, how um, what's your preferred exposure with all of the capital rationalisation or business rationalisation, I guess the banks are looking pretty homogenous, reasonably similar. How do you tell them apart and, and what's your preferred way to, to play that banking theme? Yeah, I think the, 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 the way we look at banks here is around, you know, the opportunities um, of um, around some of the key metrics. So um, the most upside we think is in National Australia Bank, um, given that have been a mass underperformer for a long period of time, um, it makes sense they have the most potential. So um, Ross McEwen, fantastic CEO, uh, very straight shooter. He's come in and made some big changes already and getting the culture back to where it needs to be. So I think NAB for us has the most upside when you look at opportunity sets uh, with costs, um, you know, product rationalisation, IT, uh, very much a winner uh for us, and then it becomes a little bit more difficult um, post NAB. CBA is a fantastic company, very well run, but on valuation, it is um, definitely expensive. But it, I think it's warranted that premium, and they have got bundles of excess capital. So um, expect big things on capital management from Commonwealth Bank. 
And then between ANZ and, and Westpac, it becomes um, a lot harder. Um, our preference at the moment is probably with Westpac on valuation grounds. Um, that's been under significant pressure. Obviously, the um, Austrac fines, um, some op risk, uh, and they've got some cost issues which they've got to work their way through. So it's going to take a few years for them to come through. So uh, on valuation grounds, it just um, – slightly ahead of ANZ on opportunity and then ANZ um, would be the, the one with the um, which is our least weight. Um, they've got, you know, a very big institutional book uh, versus the others um, and some uh, very big weighting in New Zealand, which is under, under a bit of pressure there as well. So um, that's how we rank them at the moment. Okay. Look, there's lots to talk about uh, with the banks and financials in in general across the Australian market. We could probably do a whole podcast on that, but uh, let's forge on. So your second theme was the energy sector, I guess one that was hit uh, severely during the COVID crisis. What's the thesis for energy recovery over the next 12 months? It's, it's it's fairly simple, is that demand destruction will recover. Um, and with all producing nations, they're going to they're going to they're going to do whatever it takes to to keep supply um, um, keep supply in, in in proportion to demand as it recovers. The other aspect that is probably going to drive it over the medium to long term is that what we've seen over the last six months in particular is capex of the global oil majors has gone down in a big way. So and that won't come back on uh, for some time. So what will what that will create is some supply disruption um, over that medium to long term. So from that perspective, as the as the global recovery takes shape and as demand starts to recover, once we get to full system demand, that capex hole or that capex you know the, the slippage. Uh, will create uh, a supply-demand imbalance in outer years. So from that standpoint, as the forward curve for oil starts to uh, look out to 22, 23, then to 24, uh, we expect that oil price recovery uh, to be somewhat turbocharged. And do you think investors at this point um, need to take account of uh, longer-term structural issues related to the rise of renewables? Look, that is certainly um, that is certainly a consideration, and we live in a Western society, and a lot of our focus is on what's in front of us, and the demand for electric vehicles and green energy is something that is front of mind for us today. But if you consider where the vast majority of oil consumption takes place, it's more in the developed countries. So, what we consider as a, a long term structural uh, headwind, as you as you rightly point out. That's um, that's probably beyond where investors should be considering from a, a Santos or such a Woodside perspective today. Um, that demand for domestic LNG and the demand for petroleum from the developing nations and, and from the developed nations is still going to underpin that growth uh, for the next three to five years at a minimum. And at this stage of the cycle, so let's talk about stock preference, um, your approach to the sector, do you want to own the best uh, business in the sector or do you want to own the most levered business to the oil price? Santos has been our long preferred uh, stock uh, within, domestically and that's, that's very much premised on Kevin Gallagher, the CEO, being his cost discipline, the cost discipline that he's in, instilled within Santos has kind of helped them ride out the volatility over the past six to 12 months. Uh, and from that perspective, 
we continue to back Santos um, going forward because they'll still have they'll have still have significant leverage to the upswing. But you are right. Um, Osh is probably is our is our next preferred um, stock within the sector, and you know, obviously there's some geopolitical risk with, with Papua New Guinea, which is starting to abate somewhat. So from that perspective, um, Santos and Oil Search are our, our preferred plays, but equally Woodside uh, with Peter Coleman going does present some opportunity in the space, um, and it, it, there could be some new life um, uh, bred into into Woodside, and yeah, that's certainly been a funding source of the markets over the last two to three years, um, and potentially under a new direction, new management, Woodside could be an interesting play, but I guess we'll start. We'll wait to see who takes the helm there. And in what direction they decide to take that, but for right here, right now, Santos and Osher are our preferred plays, and we'll keep a, a watching very, very much on Woodside. Okay, so theme number one, financials. Theme number two, energy. Theme number three, M and A. So, so balance sheets are pretty strong across listed corporates. Um, there's going to be an increasing appetite um, for M and A. What are the key? sectors that are ripe for M&A from your perspective? Already we've seen a lot in the financial sector, particularly the banks divesting assets and those assets being uh, mopped up by private equity and other players. What are the what are the obvious candidates from your perspective? So the guys who will need to deploy capital are those that with the, the, the uber strong balance sheet that have done particularly well through COVID period. So with that backdrop, you know, there's that old saying, never waste a crisis. And certainly Wes Farmers and, and, and Sonic Healthcare have been two very big beneficiaries over the past six months. Their balance sheet continually continue to get strong. Uh, Wes Farm with the sell down from of, of Coles, um, they've been very selective in their M&A approach, but we'd certainly anticipate them to go out and splash some cash and to come out of COVID to ensure yeah, not only Bunnings is a growth engine, but they find other other you know, other tools uh, to, to to accelerate growth over the next two to three years. So we expect them to spend some money. Uh, Sonic has been a very uh, has, has certainly benefited from the COVID testing regime globally. Um, you know, we we see them as one of the beneficiaries of COVID that should should be able to come out the other side and and deploy the excess capital that they've generated. Um, and to grow in markets where they've got an established presence and, 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 to, and to make some more acquisitions at pre-COVID multiples um, to help to help grow and bolster that business and position itself for the future. So we kind of see it. Uh, and staying with the healthcare space, Ramsey, again, they raise capital during the period. There'll be certainly lots of opportunity in the, in the hospital space um, to grow that one uh, inorganically in or even um, to just backfill hospitals and, and, and brownfield and, and, and greenfield expansion. So, you know, Sonic and Ramsey are probably two from the healthcare perspective. Um, but elsewhere, it's consolidation. So if you kind of look through uh, what we see, you know, gaming, the star and crown, it makes certain sense for those two to get, uh, to get together at this juncture. And some of the other financials, IAG and QBE, um, the way that they're positioned, the way that capital is still fairly fluid in the world, we expect that they'll certainly be in the um, the eyes of some of the big global players. The insurance uh, sector. Obviously, um, IAG um, has raised capital um, recently. So your thoughts on that um, insurance sector? Premium rates, I guess, are supportive. Interest rates at the moment aren't that supportive. Perhaps the claims environment is less supportive than it might otherwise have been. How do you view the, the insurance, general insurance sector at the moment? Yeah, I think it, there's reason to be extremely positive about the insurance sector. So 
Um, interest rates are not as big a deal as for, let's say, a bank as um, insurers get to control some of their pricing through premium um, rates and they can push it up quite aggressively. And, and we've seen that over the last six to 12 months with rates, you know, ranging up from 5 to 15% increases. So I think the insurers um, are in an incredibly good space at the moment. Obviously, the business claims was a big impact um, particularly for IAG. Um, but I think when you look at IAG now, you can pretty well invest in that company with a bit of certainty because they've provided for probably the worst-case outcome and any outcome you get in the courts. Um, I think this is very much like the Australian banks where you could get right-backs with those provisions. So um, for us, IAG, incredibly conservative um, view of business claims at the moment. So... I'd say they're in a very good position. And QBE, uh, they um, do reinsurance for a lot of their business insurance, so um, their impact isn't as big. But, again, they've got the nice tailwinds from the premium rates increasing, and um, you'd probably expect a couple of years of a hardening cycle on rates, uh, premium rates, because um, of those business claims hitting, um, you know, reinsurers across the industry. So um, I think insurance is a, is a great place to look. Um, they've been hit incredibly hard um, off those business interruption claims. So I think great place to be with, you know, the cycle is already in their favour. So uh, for us, I think it's a good place. Okay, so there are your three key themes, um, and we'll recap those towards the end of the podcast. But um, it would be remiss if we didn't take the opportunity just to touch on a couple of other subjects, guys. So... Um, Coronavirus beneficiaries, something that you guys have talked about previously in your literature uh, to your shareholders. Um, you know, obviously, supermarkets, online retailers, consumer-related businesses have generally done well. We've previously talked to your colleague, Oscar Oberg, about how uh, the automotive sector or aspects of the automotive sector did well through the pandemic. Let's deal with the staples first. Coles and Woolworths, they've been proven as big parts of consumers' lives, consumers' Uh, communities that have done well through the pandemic. How do you think about those businesses now as we return to normal? Woolies is our preferred player there because you do get the reopening trade as well as that defensive uh, earnings stream. So the hotels and um, the reopening of the hotel uh, revenue stream provides somewhat of a tailwind uh, for Woolies going forward. But certainly... 2020 has presented some challenges and some opportunities for that space. So operating costs uh, were significantly elevated from ensuring a that their employees were safe during 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 the corona peak, uh, and secondly, it kind of accelerated the online fulfilment challenges that both Coles and Woolworths had. So certainly, Woolworths has performed a lot better than Coles has from an online fulfilment perspective because they're doing a lot more install. Uh, fulfillment as opposed to Coles' you know, outsource model. So from where we sit, we think both Coles and Woolworths should continue to do well into next year um, because we aren't out of the woods just yet and there will still be some sort of – there will be a fair bit of conservatism in the way that people spend going forward and we think domestic um, domestic travel in particular will be buoyant. So a lot of the regional shopping centres that Woolworths and Coles have should provide continue to underpin their earnings, but our preference – uh, going forward is certainly Woolworths. Um, and as they start to reduce some of those extra costs that they faced in 2020, we should start to see some elements of operating leverage come through. 
Yeah, okay. And and on, on the discretionary end, obviously, you know, the Harvey Normans, JB Hi-Fi's and the online guys, Kogan, Temple and Webster, they've all done uh, very well as well. How do you think about that discretionary end? I guess in the one hand, they're going to be cycling some really tough numbers over the next 12 months, but you know, there's still a lot of you know, fiscal stimulus and, and, and support for the consumer and the savings rate has increased, which presumably will also provide um, increased consumer spending yeah. over the medium term. So what's your views from a consumer perspective? You, you nailed the biggest challenge um, in your and that is comping these numbers. So we continue to see these guys trade well through the Christmas period and potentially even through the first quarter of, of next year. But beyond that, it gets really challenging because there will be, you know, consumers will will, will have spent a, a, an increased amount on improving their homes over 2020. But we know that by human nature that people will return to old habits and old habits are travel. Australians love to travel. So as soon as domestic travel and, and, and travel bubbles, as, as, as announced this week between Australia and New Zealand, start to open up, that consumer spend will start to be redistributed uh, and will be redistributed to travel uh, and the like. From So from that perspective, you know, the first quarter, these guys are somewhat insulated, but we start to see some significant headwinds for these consumer stocks beyond March. Uh, and the comps that they will face, you know, look, you could start to see double-digit negative comps from, you know, the back half of next year. So, you know, I guess the, from our perspective and what we're trying to focus on now is what can, you know, the, the JB Hi-Fi's and the Harvey Normans and the Super Chiefs and the like do today to help combat those headwinds that they'll face. And, you know, certainly buybacks and stronger balance sheets will certainly will, will come into play. But when it comes to a, a relative asset allocation perspective, you know, we're probably going to prefer to own the Qantas's of the world um, that they're going to have that operating leverage and, and, and they're going to have that incremental spend from the consumer geared towards them as opposed to uh, that spend in home, which is which we've seen in 2020. Okay, uh, that makes sense. So substitute some of those consumer names for some travel names. Um, let's just briefly touch on risks. I, I guess, is inflation earlier than expected the, the number one risk that you see to the outlook? I think inflation is very much on the minds of most people. As we talked about, the, the policy is going to be um, very easy for a while and until we get a full recovery, I don't think you'll see inflation um, surging as until, you know, potential GDP, um, the slack gets taken up and we and we push towards potential. So um, inflation is probably a medium-term story. I think the, I mean, the biggest risk is the efficacy of the vaccine um, or the mutation of the, the virus making it the vaccine, you know, not very effective. So, I mean, that is a risk, the risk of, you know, extended lockdowns again if, as, as we go through December, January, February, yeah. uh, causing uh, more stress in, the, in small business obviously is a risk. Um, but I, I, the, the biggest risk that we talk about is, um, the path to normalcy on um, um, monetary policy. So at the moment, credit spreads are incredibly tight, like they shouldn't be where they are. Um, interest rates are at, you know, almost zero uh, across most developed nations. That path, trying to trying to get off that um, is going to be painful and it won't be easy. So, I mean, that's the biggest risk of dislocation as we um, push up rates and credit spreads return to normal levels um, from the abnormal levels we see at the moment. So 
It's just that transition off this extraordinary policy into more normal policy. Um, there's going to be um, some very volatile swings in the market over the next period as, as we navigate through that. But that's to us, is one of the biggest risks we, we see at the moment. Yeah, okay. And what about political tensions with China? Do you think that has the potential to derail the recovery in Australia? Uh, it's a very interesting question. Um, you, you would think um, diplomacy will win out over the next period. As tensions you know, escalate, there has been some meetings uh, between the Australians and Chinese, and it, it appears... We're probably around peak at the moment and um, we'd hope some diplomacy comes back in and we push towards um, uh, better relations. But I think it's also while there is no, uh, we're in the lame duck session of the US president, you will see most countries try and test um, other countries uh, until the new president is sitting in, in the Washington at the moment. So it's always a dangerous period. Um, and we're seeing that at the moment, but um, I'd hope diplomacy um, kicks in and, and it looks like both parties are trying to get there, but it's just going to take a little bit at the moment. The, the interesting thing is what's clear is that speaker box politics doesn't work. Mm. So, you know, the Australian government equally, the Chinese the politicians need to take these behind closed doors to come to, come to some sort of resolution I guess one of the risks that we see is that if they continue to play this out through the media and 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 hold that higher ground in that perspective, it will be more challenging to resolve the differences. So from our perspective, we'd like to see a lot of it to go behind closed doors and resolution to be done that way. Uh, and if it does escalate further, it does make that bridge longer uh, and, and harder to travel over. Yeah. Okay. And from a global perspective, is Biden positive for markets? Um, and do you think he delivers uh, stimulus as one of his first initiatives? Yeah, for us, um, you look through history and he should be positive for markets. Um, I, I'd say it probably suits our side more where you get more fiscal stimulus and um, you get some interest rates and inflation coming back. That would suit us and our style. Um, we're not really as as we mentioned earlier in the call, um, really linked to any style. But um, these ultra-low rates and um, tight credit spreads are incredibly good for these growth stocks and um, low or negative profit stocks. So um, for us, Biden would be good if he implements fiscal stimulus and gets, um, you know, some... Uh, slope on the yield curve coming back in, we'd, we'd be very much in favour of that uh, from these uh, crazy um, settings at the moment with crazy valuations. So a um, bit of normality on um, valuations would be very welcomed in our view. Okay, there we go. Some of the thoughts from portfolio managers Matt Haupt and John Ayub at WAM Leaders. So to summarise some key themes for the next 12 months, financials, um, off the back of credit growth and some potential write-backs in the short term and over the medium term, some upward risk to um, interest rates uh, and remembering that banks in particular have faced five to seven years' worth of headwinds that are now uh, potentially unwinding. Second key theme that the guys have identified is energy, so rising global economic activity. And then you know, thirdly, 
uh, potential M&A across a number of areas of the listed economy with a couple of names, Wes Farmers and Sonic Healthcare, with very strong balance sheets looking to deploy that uh, in the economy, uh, as well as a lot of other topics that we've talked about. So before we uh, let you go, tell us about uh, WAM Leaders' uh, investment performance over the last little while. How have you been going? Yeah, performance of the fund has been very pleasing. Um, even with the, the, the pandemic um, happening last financial year, we were able to finish positive for the year, which was pleasing. Um, and as far as our benchmark goes, we're, we're 10.7% ahead of our benchmark. Um, and this year's um, also going quite well as, as well. Um, off our November um, NTA, we're circa 4% up on market as well. So um, been very pleasing um, last period and we're hoping to continue that momentum as well. Well, thank you very much. Um, and uh, yeah, let's hope for positive markets um, as you guys expect over the uh, next 12 months. That is about it for this edition of the podcast. The easiest way to get more information on Wilson Asset Management and their range of listed investment companies, including John and Matt's WAM leaders, whose code is WLE. So either speak to your financial advisor, WAM Leaders features in our listed investment company research that uh, we produce at ELNC Bailey, as do uh, most of the other, if not all of the other uh, WAM listed investment companies actually. Um, or you can go to the WAM uh, website, wilsonassetmanagement.com.au and I think you guys have released your November update in the last day or two. Uh, but guys, uh, John and Matt, Merry Christmas. Good luck for the year ahead. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Bailey Podcast today. Thanks, Nick, and thanks for your support and uh, have a great Christmas. Yes, so much appreciated. And that is the final ELNC Bailey Podcast for the year. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all your support. Please have a safe and happy Christmas and we'll be back bigger and better than ever next year. You have been listening to The Value Podcast. The information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. You should not rely on general advice without making your own inquiries or your own assessments about the suitability of the financial products or services mentioned.